Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Good evening. We barely have turned into this year and already it is the end of July. It seems that this pandemic has also changed our appreciation of time. And many of us are confined still or choose to be confined, to be out of the way and keep others safe. So, especially under these circumstances, it's very wonderful to be able to get together in this way. And of course, starting tomorrow night, there will be the summer session, which will give us the opportunity to delve even deeper into this kind of formal practice that we have. It seems that email, for example, is one of the lifelines that we have to communicate with people. And what comes in the email at times is quite interesting. So as I was contemplating about what to say tonight, uh, just yesterday I received an email that will actually be used to lead this Dharma talk, especially into a direction that came out of it. Sometimes it's wonderful to receive email from people you don't know at all. And so I received one yesterday saying, hello, Dokuro. I have a question which I have brought up at, in a public forum and nobody could answer, but they pointed me to you. So please forgive me if I write to you. And as it turns out, it was from a person who had received a string of Tibetan prayer flags a few years ago from someone who had gone and traveled to China and brought it back and given to that person. And apparently ever since those flags on a string of about 15 feet had been folded up neatly put away in a closet. And apparently it took a couple of years to come forth with this question and ask it. And it was, well, what should I do with these flags? Because I feel it is disrespectful to just fly them because of aesthetic reasons. Can you tell me what should I do with it? And that brought me to reflect on the idea of the sacred, what we regard as sacred, what we regard as what is not sacred. So of course, to get to the end of the story, flags, you know, no matter what's printed on it, all they do is this, and they do it wonderfully in Tibet, they do it wonderfully in Nepal, in Northern India and all over the world. 
and a flag is a flag in the moment when it blows in the wind beyond any idea of sacred, beyond any idea of whatever is left out. So my recommendation to that person was, well, don't feel it's disrespectful. Let them lose freedom from being bound in the closet or give it to somebody who will fly them. But so I started to think about sacred. What is sacred and what is not sacred? Other words for that, that is not sacred. That is not holy. The mundane, the secular, or the other dichotomy of the pure and the defiled, the heaven and the hell, the good and the evil. And of course, you know already what direction this will have to go. So one of the things that came to my mind is, well, it's of course a cultural thing about what is sacred and not. If we grow up in one specific culture, a certain set of norms appear to be sacred, a certain set of objects or ritual objects appear to be sacred, but others not. So I really deeply appreciate it to be asked this question because it already showed some awareness of that, that sacred is something that might be different even though it is not coming from that very culture of the person who asked, something was recognized. And that's a, a wonderful thing to see. I'm sure you have been in many stores where you have seen Buddhas with a hole in their head and a lampshade on top of it seems to be quite popular to have a Buddha lamp. Now, just for the sake of thinking about it, imagine, imagine some other religions, ritual objects with a lampshade on top. It could really end up in pandemonium if that were the case. So why is it that the Buddhists don't go and complain to the furniture store about the Buddhas that have been drilled heads or other objects that are just made into objects of aesthetic beauty? Is it not sacred? Is it defiled by the process of being turned into a table lamp? Is it some kind of sacredness just by the fact that someone recognizes in it something that is aesthetically pleasing. That is the expression of, let's say, what the face of the Buddha stands for, or even if it's just the hand of the Buddha. Something seems to be in there. So, how do we decide then 
what is sacred, what is not sacred. And how does it play into this very practice that we are doing here? Sishin, there's a lot of ritual with that. We chant so-called sacred texts. The image of the Bodhisattva or of the Buddha on the Butsudan, on the altar, is a sacred object. And apparently we feel that. We feel that, but why is that that we feel it? That is the question. Recognition of that, what can be called sacred, is the first step. And not recognition from the point of view of what we have learned, but recognition of, from the point of making relationship with what appears in front of us in the world that we call the world of the 10,000 things. And to make true a relationship, which we exercise, which we learn, which we contemplate in Zazen, in these formal contexts, is the bringing together of that what is perceived and the perceiver, that what seems like the object and that what appears to be the subject. We can bring respect into it, respect that we have received from our affinity, maybe to the type of practice that we follow, maybe through what we have been taught, maybe through what we have experienced ourselves. And here comes the next step. And the most important of all, it's not just the recognition, the realization, but the embodiment of that sacredness. I would sometimes call it the embodiment of awe. Being in awe is being before words. I don't want to say beyond words, no, before words. It is so all-consuming and present that there is no space, not even an inch or a fraction of a hair, an eyelash of an ant, as Shuko-san would say, left for words to appear. That is the activity of being sacred. So the last weekend, uh, Shuko-san and I spent uh, virtually at the home temple of Rinzai-ji in, in Los Angeles, holding Joshu Roshi's uh, sixth anniversary. And it was a session. And in this context, it reminded me of one specific thing that always struck me. And it turned to me into basically an indicator of how aware and how, how actualized the practitioners 
who took the role of uh, the person calling everybody to the formal meal was. The reason for that it is that uh, the donai, the people in the zendo, are called to the meals with the gong. It's a little different than uh, at Dagosatsu Zendo, and the gong is played in, uh, in the pattern that is very similar to the pattern of the Han. And while everybody is, pro uh, is processing to the meal in the tea room uh, where the tables are set up, the person is holding that gong. It's about maybe nine inches of a plate type gong that is made from cast iron. And in the front, it has the wonderful face of the white kannon. So it is kanzeon that is calling people to the meal. And on many occasions, kanzeon was hit right in the face with the mallet. Becoming aware and making relationship with what we see, with what we perceive, and how we relate to it is part of awakening. Part of awakening and being awake with what we do. So if we just pick something up and start hacking at it, that is an expression of incomplete awareness and of not being fully awake with what we do. Finding a spot on the gong that is not hitting Kanzeon right into the face takes being awake. So that was an interesting lesson that I learned there to see and if we all do that and become more aware how we interact and make relationship with everything, with everyone, even with every thought or every feeling that we have ourselves, then something new and different starts to develop. Making relationship initiates that possibility of awe. It initiates that possibility of the wordless, of before words. And it can only be actualized in following the activity of full surrender. That we fully give ourselves to the presence of what we are doing. Now here, things become sacred. We bring the opposites together. And of course, one of the most important examples for that in our practice is Gasho. When we bring our hands together, here are the opposites. 
in between the opposites is that what keeps things apart and by with full intention bringing our palms together and having that experience of all that experience that leads us into that surrender of no words have a place or can find a place because we are so present. Then we have reached that actualization where there is nothing that is sacred anymore, where there is nothing or no thing that is not sacred. The interesting thing is that at Rinzaiji, I also happened to come to speak about Shumon Katoshu, the entangling vines, case number 24 in this context. And it was interesting because that also spoke about heaven and hell. Same kind of dichotomy. And in the case, it says virtuous practitioners do not enter nirvana. Precept-breaking monks do not fall into hell. Seijo no gyosha nehan ni irazu. Hakai no bikku jigoku ni dasetsu. If I do well, I will go to heaven. If I don't do well, I will fall into hell. It's the common thinking that we find in a two-dimensional world. Hearing from, and this is preached by Manjushri himself in the Mahaprajna Sutra, preached by Manjushri, saying that virtuous practitioners do not enter nirvana and precept-breaking monks do not fall into hell. We reach the same realm before all these separations, before all these compartmentalizations that our mind tends to entertain and likes not only to entertain, but likes to make into reality. This is where us and the others come into existence. This is where the profane is cut off from the sacred. And often these qualities are displaced into objects, into ideas. An idea is another object. It's just an abstraction of something. Into ideas, into ideologies, into identities. For that reason, for that practice, Rinzai Zen offers many possibilities to embody that pre, before, without need for words, without need for intellection, but with the full need of surrender and dedication. And I'm bringing this up today because it is a session that is coming up. 
it is not only a sushin that is coming up, but it is also ending up in one of the most wonderful things that we have. It's a ceremony to acknowledge a number of human beings who will surrender to this path in a different way than they had in the past. And taking every moment, every sit, every breath, every gasho, every bow as an opportunity to return to what was talked about today is what Sessin is for. And later, you know, Sessin just doesn't end when it's never over. It continues con without interruption. Shibayama Zenke always tried to tell people life has to turn into session, but not in the sense that there will be rules, that somebody will be ringing you out of bed in the morning or that you have to eat formal meals. No, it is the quality of presence. Once again, the quality of presence. Now, this case 24 about the virtuous practitioners not entering nirvana and the precept-breaking monks not falling into hell, it prompted the great reformer of the Rinzai Zen school in Japan, Hakuin Eikaku, to write a poem a poem that speaks to this very koan. And I'm going to read it to you. First, I'm going to read it in the Japanese, in the Kanbun, uh, because it's just written in four times seven Chinese characters. But in Japanese, it would be read like this. Kangi arasoi hiku seite no tsubasa. Shinsbame Narabi Iko Yoryu no Eda Jinpukago Tuzasaite no Iro Oku Sondo Takana o Nesunde Sorioscu Silent ants pull at the dragonfly's wing. Young swallows rest side by side on a willow branch. Silk growers' wives, pale in face, carry their baskets. Village children with pilfered bamboo shoots crawl through a fence. Hakuin wrote this poem on a scroll which was displayed somewhere in an inn. And at some point, two monks who had already finished their training under a different master came and stayed in that inn and they saw the poem and that it was in relation to this koan. And of course, they could not make heads or tail of it. 
they went to see Hakuin. Both went in to his den. <laughs> and both, of course, emerged as his students, continuing to study with Hakuin. What is sacred? What is Hakuin expressing in words that cannot be talked about? The very prayer flags that I started with this morning, this, this evening, tell the same story when they flap in the wind. Our very eyes receive and visualize that very story. The moment we see the movement and the color. Our very breath with which we must become intimately familiar sings that soundless song. And at times, words have to be given. And I can't imagine anyone better doing that than Hakui. See his words. Feel the awe and listen once again. Silent ants pull at the dragonfly's wing. Young swallows rest side by side on a willow branch. Silk growers' wives, pale in face, carry their baskets. Village children with pilfered bamboo shoots crawl through a fence. When we can see where the sacred, the profane, the ordinary become one, and when we can actualize it, then this practice becomes really interesting. And I look forward to walking with you that path over this weekend, over whatever time there may be in the future, that we all walk this path together. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Thank you for listening.